From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. In late 2012, the ACLU filed a lawsuit challenging the military's ban on women serving in combat. Just weeks later, in early 2013, then-Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta lifted the ban. However, women's access to these roles remains unequal, and the litigation is ongoing. Our guest today has been at the forefront of the fight for equality within the military. We have with us Anurada Bhagwati, a former Marine Corps captain and author of Unbecoming, a memoir of disobedience. She's a three-time ACLU client and founder of the Service Women's Action Network, a lead plaintiff in the Women in Combat lawsuit. Her memoir details her experience as an Indian-American bisexual woman in the Marines, confronting a culture permeated by racism, misogyny, and sexual violence. The memoir also tells the story of her activism in pursuit of reforming the military. Anurada has received numerous awards for her advocacy and now teaches yoga and meditation to veterans. Anurada, thanks very much for joining us in the studio. Thanks Welcome for to the podcast. Me. Thank you. So, your memoir begins with you as a young girl struggling to meet the expectations of your parents, who are both highly accomplished economists from India, while also navigating life as a kid in New York City. You thrived in the classroom and on the basketball court and attended prestigious schools like Stuyvesant and Yale. But then your story takes an unpredictable turn. You decide to join the Marines. So why did you decide to join the Marines? Well, in in retrospect, it was very much a rebellion. <clears throat> I really felt like I needed to get away from my home, my family. They put a lot of pressure on me growing up, uh, enormous academic expectations that for the most part I met, but it was a lot to take. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I felt like I really had no voice growing up. It was also a really odd experience being bicultural. So mm -hmm. I would, you know, at home I was doing homework and I was sort of indoctrinated in Indian expectations about school, 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 and then marriage right, mm -hmm. to a man, obviously. And then right. I'd go to school school and surrounded by mostly white kids and not really knowing how I fit in, but they were introducing me to a whole nother series of <laughs> options, you know, they, questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Is not, it's not an Indian thing. <laughs> it's not something, <laughs> something parents discuss with their kids. Like, you're just supposed to choose a profession and then get married. And so joy and freedom, like, these are all very American concepts. So the two things were very much in conflict, and mm -hmm. I was trying to balance it out. And the Marines were like freedom for me. Um, mm -hmm. Just fleeing my my dad's controlling attitudes back home, and my mom was also going through a lot in her life that I didn't know about until I looked a little deeper. And yeah, and it was very much my way of asserting myself and making sure they couldn't get to me or control my life. Well, it's interesting that you frame it as the Marines represented freedom for you. And once you actually joined, did you find that freedom? How did your expectations match with the reality of your experience in the Marines? Yeah, I did not find that freedom. <laughs> and and I, I was a little naive, but also knowing that some part of me mostly just wanted to get away from home. Even during the recruiting process, I knew that something was up with the Marine Corps. Like, they just were not that familiar with the idea of strong women. Mm. And I had grown up with a very strong mother, and the women I'd gone to school with, my close friends, were incredibly empowered. Um, I was indoctrinated in feminism, even if I didn't know what that word was all about. And so I wanted to join the most extreme branch of service, the most physical, the most challenging. And there's something, you know, really bent in my, in my mind toward 
not just extreme life, but like living on the edge, pushing my physical and mental limits. I grew up with a lot of discipline, like physicality was not encouraged. So, mm. you know, sports was not a thing for my parents. They were really, really like horrified that I, I loved sports mm. uh, and working out. But women in the Marine Corps were not required to do the same things as men. And mm. I found this out during the recruiting process. I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. You know, why aren't we supposed to do pull-ups? Like, I, I want to. I can. We all can. Like, I know elite athletes. I know all American athletes who are women. They could crush these guys. But right. I don't think the Marine Corps had met these women. It, or at least they made it sound like it. So I joined knowing that there were double standards. But when I first put on the uniform— I was really shocked at like, the segregated training, um, the lower standards for women, the low expectations. Like, we were not supposed to succeed or do as much as the men. It really threw me. Hmm. It was a new world. And why did it seem so important to you that the expectations were the same? I mean, I always believed in meritocracy, right? Like, no matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, you know, like your size and— it didn't matter. Like, if you could do the job. Certainly, if you wanted to do the job, you should be allowed to do the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're capable. And then if you, you, know, you pass the test, you should be able to do it. And so uh, before women were even given the option to try something, they were told they couldn't. I remember things on things like obstacle courses, we were given assists. And I thought, like, what is that all about? Like, some of these women are clearly big and tall enough to, like, jump up and grab a bar. But they wanted us to use a ramp. So I ended up doing things sort of like subverting the order. And <laughs> like, I don't know how to use that ramp. I'm going to do pull-ups. I'm gonna, you know, And it's, it's a little risky, right? Because you're not supposed to do anything other than what your drill instructors or your officers are telling you to do. And yet it was just backwards. And so you ended up having to, as a woman, just ignore what was expected of you, which was very little sometimes physically, and do what the guys were doing anyway. And combat is maybe the most clear example of Mm -hmm. this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time I joined, you know, G.I. Jane was sort of one of my paths into the military. I was really inspired by the idea of this extraordinary woman doing this extraordinary thing in the military. I didn't know that women couldn't be Navy SEALs at the time. I joined the Marine Corps because I couldn't be a Navy SEAL, but even within the Marine Corps, mostly infantry, which at the time was off limits to women. So Mm -hmm. it didn't matter if women were capable of being in the infantry, if they could pass all the requirements, they just were not allowed to go to infantry school. And so that filtered down to like my entire experience because so many jobs in the Marine Corps were part of the infantry. Like even if you were an intelligence officer, if you were attached to an infantry unit, you had to be a guy. You know, you couldn't be a female intelligence officer in an infantry unit. So it really limited my options. Um, And also just working with the guys, and the Marine Corps is mostly male, 7% female about. And most of the guys, again, had very low expectations of women or, you know, we're wondering what we were doing there, making the guys look bad. This kind of attitude was really pervasive on top of the pervasive sexual harassment. And so it was quite a shock. And it certainly led to my activism afterwards to try and open up those jobs to women. Well, before we get to the activism, Mm -hmm. while you were in the Marine Corps, I'm hearing you talk about both the rules, but also the expectations. And so I'm interested in sort of how the formal rules that are in place may be unequal and you can try to change them. But then there's also the question of the culture of the institution and how this sort of misogyny permeated, not just assists in obstacle courses, Mm -hmm. but also many other parts of your life as a servicewoman. I became very familiar with things like rape jokes and derogatory language and 
pornography open in the workplace and this kind of constant barrage of conversation in the barracks about women and women's bodies. And, you know, you, you couldn't escape it. It was literally the air you breathed, right? And there were very few women. So few of us even made it through officer candidate school. We were like, a you know, an endangered species. And hmm. so by the time we made it and were integrated, you know, because the Marine Corps still segregates basic training. It's the only branch of service to do that. So, and it's a huge impediment to the Marine Corps functioning in the 21st century, really. Like the, the backwards attitudes can largely be attributed to segregated training at boot camp and officer candidate school. Because the Army doesn't do that. The Army's just a generation ahead of the Marine Corps in terms of gender integration. And so, yeah, I was sort of, I was not new to sexual harassment. I had been assaulted as a teenager, so I was not new to sexual violence. But the Marine Corps was different. The Marine Corps was sort of sinister, you know, the idea that, that people just wanted you to fail and reminded you on a daily basis that you didn't belong because you were a woman or a person of color for that matter. I mean, there's a lot of racism that I mostly observed. I wasn't as much the target of racism, although there was a kind of lack of familiarity. I'll just call it ignorance uh, about sort of where I came from. I mean, most people can't identify my name unless they've been to South Asia or from that part of the world, right? And so I served a few years after 9-11, mostly. And so, you know, am I Arab? Am I Muslim? Am I from Iran? Am I, you know, and on and on. You could see people, like, doing the math and and then, you know, maybe overlooking the fact that I was brown with a strange name um, because I was Indian and maybe not Muslim, right? So it was just a, a horrendous sizing up of who I was or wasn't. And I saw that kind of increasing hostility towards brown people generally from other parts of the world. I'm interested also in the comparison between social dynamics and civilian culture versus the marine culture specifically. I don't know if you want to speak about the other branches, but, you know, racism, misogyny, sexual violence, these, of course, are present and prevalent in civilian culture as well. Mm -hmm. But is there something that's specifically different about the military other than just the numbers? When you have 93% male, you get certain dynamics. But is there mm -hmm. something even more different about the military beyond the numbers? Yes. I mean, it's a much more sinister and intimately sinister um, experience of all of these things because you're living with the people that are potentially discriminating against you or causing you physical and emotional harm. So... There's no leaving your job. You are your job. You are your uniform. There's no quitting your job either. You legally can't quit your job, even if you're the victim of a horrendous crime, because you'll go to jail, right? Like, we mm. sign our name to the dotted line, and we belong to Uncle Sam for several years. That's It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. And so, because of that insular nature of the military— Plus the hierarchy, which is, you know, exists obviously in any civilian job. You know, you've got a boss in most places. Um, but the chain of command has its own unique personality. And it's, you learn about this at boot camp or basic training. You must obey orders, right? And that is, it's indoctrinated to such a deep level. It's practically in your DNA. So to go against what someone is saying or doing who outranks you, it really requires more than even courage, sort of audacity, right? Because how, you know, like, how dare you think that what you're experiencing is wrong? You know, because I'm saying it's right. <laughs> well, and after you left the Marine Corps, you've been quite active in trying to reform the institution. But can you say a word about what your reaction was like at the time when you were a service member? What did resistance look like 
while you were in the service, given that yeah. obedience is paramount? For me, I mean, I recognized when I had relative privilege. Yes, I was a brown woman. I was bisexual, but very much in the closet during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, with a couple of exceptions. But but I was an officer, so I had more power and rank than the vast majority of Marines, and certainly the, the Marines I was supervising. So as, you know, uh, an officer or a, a commander, mm. I was responsible for all of these Marines, many of them younger than me, and when something was happening to them, this is often the case with officers, you know, you almost become a default guardian or parent, you know, mm-hmm. or, or big sister or brother. And uh, I always felt like it was my responsibility to stick my neck out for my Marines. And so, you know, there are numerous cases uh, in my units of sexual harassment, even sexual assault. Certainly racism, Islamophobia, you know, it's kind of all the things, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, the, the works. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it required sitting down with a Marine. Sometimes it required, you know, getting the first sergeant involved, you know, a tough senior enlisted advisor who was going to, you know, use language that potentially could only come from him and not from <laughs> not from the so-called civilized officer. And sometimes it required taking it up the chain of command and, and trying to initiate a criminal investigation mm-hmm. against sexual predators, which usually was not— Received well by higher ups. Mm. And so I learned like how to navigate the system. I, I've even confronted senior officers who were discriminating against me, which again, it requires a little bit of, you know, a, a leap of faith, audacity, maybe hubris. I'm not sure because it's not commonly done. Um, mm. And you, you risk a great deal in terms of your reputation, your ability to be promoted. And yet, I, having grown up with a family, I grew up with and knowing the folks I grew up with. I, I had some powerful influencers back home, and I, I knew that there was a set of values beyond the Marine Corps that were really what I was all about, and that's what I leaned on during that time in the Marine Corps. We can imagine how difficult it must have been to push back against this culture from within, but then once you left the Marine Corps, you sort of put all of your energy into those advocacy efforts. But if the culture is different in the military than in the civilian life— advocacy strategies might also be different. Can you talk about mm-hmm. what your approach was to advocacy once you left the the service? Yeah, there were a couple of things. I mean, when I founded Service Women's Action Network with an, a group of women veterans who were from all different backgrounds, it was the most diverse kind of fledgling organization that the veterans world has probably seen. Many women of color, many queer women, lots of enlisted women. Mm. So it did not look like the average veterans organizing landscape, which was largely white male, you know, officer-led, certainly straight, cisgender, et cetera. And so we brought a kind of reality to the conversation that hadn't been there in Washington before. We talked very frankly and passionately about the mistreatment of service women and women veterans. Just like these systems are failing women. So many of us have experienced all of these horrific things, and they need to be spoken about, not swept under the rug, not handled by auxiliary women's committees within these large organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think the passion alone really shifted the conversation on the Hill. I remember the first time I testified before Congress, people's heads were turning when we were walking through the halls of Congress because I don't think they'd ever seen so many women of color. And the full expression of gender, you know, from tough butch girls to, you know, very femme women to, you know, dreadlocks and buzz cuts and like the whole thing, right? Like this was not the veterans organizing landscape. And so we brought a reality to Washington, um, and they ultimately they couldn't turn their heads. In terms of strategy, we were de- very much bridge builders between like this 
temperamentally and politically conservative landscape in Washington around military and security issues. And because we had the experience of having served, we could sort of get away with using strong language, right? Because it had happened to us. And the civilians using the same language were usually kind of cast aside. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But they couldn't quite say that to us and get away with it. And so we we had to lean on our military experience, even if it was painful military experience, you know, to, to move these issues forward. Certainly sympathetic allies who had been doing this work for quite some time, including the ACLU, um, I think recognized the power that an organization like SWAN had or the influence because we were the first veterans organization to really speak for ourselves Mm -hmm. rather than be represented by a group of lawyers or other activists. It's a fascinating role that SWAN played. You talked about bridge building and sort of addressing some of the the issues that civilian advocates may have been talking about, but without the authenticity of having served in the military. I know you've talked in other spaces about the things that civilian advocates just kind of don't get about the military Mm -hmm. and the ways in which they may be trying to help, but actually don't really understand all of the nuances of of the institutions and how Mm -hmm. we need to approach them when we want to reform. For those of us who are supportive but don't have that experience, what should we keep in mind when we try to advocate on behalf of service women and equality more generally? Mm -hmm. I think one of the big stumbling blocks is around military culture. Some of it is infuriating, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some aspects of this culture, and some aspects need to be understood. Things as simple as chain of command, like why something like that would be necessary. Certainly in in the case of your commanding officer influencing a criminal investigation against a sexual predator in your unit, we can see where his influence might uh, jeopardize your safety and welfare if you're the victim who reports in that unit. But that's not the only impact or use of chain of command. There's also what happens on the battlefield. Why do these rules exist at all? What happens when somebody disobeys a lawful order when he's holding a loaded weapon um, and has to shoot someone whom he doesn't want to shoot, right? So it's an entirely different institution. You might be a pacifist, but just understanding that the military has a very particular mission, Mm -hmm. killing is at the focus of it, And that there are a set of rules and regulations regarding how you keep good order and discipline in an atmosphere when, I mean, this is insane, right? Crazy making when we're talking about training human beings to kill efficiently. But that that is the role of the military, right? And you have to override certain human and emotional instincts for self-preservation or peacefulness, right? So just knowing these types of things, like there actually is nuance in all of this. And... I remember when we first started talking to members of Capitol Hill, Congress members, uh, you know, folks who didn't have military experience or who didn't, who hadn't really uh, spent time working with armed services or veterans affairs committees, were very naive about some of this language. Like, oh, it's just got to be like this. You can't just talk to a bunch of generals about subverting the military justice system and not expect pushback. They are literally indoctrinated in those values, that their sense of self is wrapped up in basically acting like the judge and jury, right? Mm. Like it's the military justice system is not separate from your role as a commanding officer, even if you don't have any legal training, if you've never been to law school, right? You have the power, the judicial authority to punish people. And so 
there's got to be a little more balance and understanding in how an officer is raised and indoctrinated and sort of the values in which he sees himself as like the protector of his unit and so on, right? You joined the Marines in an act of rebellion and then confronted a variety of challenges there and have since spent lots of time and energy trying to rectify a lot of those issues. But what also comes through in your memoir, I think, is a deep and abiding love and affection for at least parts of the institution of the Marines and the military mm-hmm. more broadly. And I think that's part of the reason why your perspective is so so important to hear. Can you talk about your current relationship to the Marines and maybe the military more broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long journey. Um I served for five years, but it kind of feels like I, I served for two decades in the sense that I've, I've always been connected, um, whether to active duty or to the veterans experience. And being an officer was a real privilege, like working with Marines and learning from them. I did not have much military background. I, I didn't have any military background. Members of my family knew nothing about the military. So I learned everything from fellow Marines and most vast majority were junior to me. And so, like, the kind of respect and fondness that I have for Marines, it's still in me, like, every day. Um, When Fleet Week comes to New York, Mm. if I run into a Marine on the streets of New York, I will offer him or her a drink. Like, you know, just, like, let me get you a meal. What do you want? What do you need? (laughs) Of course, I don't look like the typical Marine, but, like, they get it ultimately. I've met thousands of folks who are serving, who have served, who've had positive and negative experiences. And certainly I've leaned into helping ones who are suffering from military experience. But I also honor those who are really proud of and happy with their military experience. I mean, there's a a huge spectrum, right, of positive and negative. And yeah, I think I've really, in retrospect, just been able to even appreciate my own experience. People often ask me if I regret having joined, which I find to be an interesting question because I don't regret at all Mm. having suffered substantially when I was in. I'm so glad, first of all, that I got out with like my life intact, but that I learned so much from fellow Marines um, and also that I found my voice. You know, I was able to help other people. Like that for me has been the strongest or the most meaningful part of this experience being in the military and being with veterans is being able to serve them in this kind of way that is not very typical, right? Like we, so much service, it's assumed it, it takes place on the battlefield in some way, right? But for me, it's really about uplifting folks who are invisible or whose experiences have been silenced. That's a really powerful message. I think one of the the, the memoir opens with a quote from Joan Jett and says, I hate myself for loving you. And I'm guessing that that's directed at the Marines, but maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Does that mm-hmm. sort of get at some of the tension that you're discussing of this affection for this institution that you have so many criticisms of? You're the first person to ask me about that quote. Oh, it's yeah, jumped it out of us. Yeah, I remember listening to that song again and again. I was like, I really identify with this. I... It was in part directed toward the Marines. In part, it was directed towards my family. Mm. I, don't, I don't hate my family, but in many ways, my relationship to my parents and my relationship to the Marine Corps is similar. <laughs> I sometimes say that I replaced like one controlling, domineering <laughs> patriarch with a much more violent version. <laughs> but 
I have actually said that in front of my father, and he's okay with it. <laughs> yeah, it's the nuanced and complex relationship I have with the military. I think there's room for all of the feelings I have mm-hmm. towards it. But sometimes, like particularly in the early years that I got out of the Marines, my desire to get back in, to go to war, like despite the fact that I— clearly had not healed from the trauma Mm. of being in uniform and being a woman. Despite all of that, I still wanted to serve. And I wanted to serve in, like, very extreme circumstances, you know, deploy as close to the action as I could. And it felt to me, as I went through years and years of therapy, very much like being in an abusive relationship Mm. that I could not successfully extricate myself from. Mm. I mean, it was like, it was a creepy parallel. It's kind of like, I'm recognizing that this institution will not accept me. I will not belong. I will not be loved in the way that I wanted to be loved. And that, of course, the word love, it's maybe a strange word, right? (laughs) But it's also how I felt about my family, right? So, you know, at some point I have to, like, cut the cord and work on myself, you know, like self-love, self-acceptance. And also recognize that the harm that was done is— it is okay to name it, to own it, and to do something about it. Like, I don't need to feel any shame about it either. Like, it needs to be named. People need to know. And it seems like you have a deep sense of hope as well, that mm-hmm. that things can change. And I'm interested in what your sort of vision is for how we see a more equitable military where yeah. women are able to serve on equal footing and in a culture that is affirming and supportive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have been on our way. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a huge setback the last couple of years. And unfortunately, it's directly related, in my opinion, to the election of our president. When Swan was working with the ACLU, 2012, 2013, and even onward, it was such an exciting time for service women. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just doors were opening left, right, and center. You know, I remember when the first Marines, the first women went through infantry training battalion, and then on the officer side, you know, um, women went through Army Ranger School. Like, it was just mind-blowing. I was so ecstatic. Mm-hmm. And to be involved in all of that, right? It was such a small community, so we were just, we were all so hyped up and optimistic. And then in 2016, something shifted, and it wasn't— uh, you know, there's something about a commander-in-chief using misogynistic language, anti-immigrant, anti-trans, anti-everything, really. But with the president's role as commander-in-chief, troops have a direct—are uh, are directly influenced by anything that comes out of the mouths of general officers or the president. Mm-hmm. And folks who had maybe been kept under wraps, you know, sexual predators, misogynists in general, racists in general, were suddenly emboldened. And Mm. within months, you saw this huge internet scandal called Marines United early 2017, January, February, where tens of thousands, 30,000 Marines and other service members and veterans, all men, it was a Facebook group, had posted nude photos of service women and other civilian women, sex videos, all without their consent, And the comments, I mean, we've all seen vile comments on social media, but it was the worst of the worst, just Mm. racist, sexist, homophobic, rape threats, the works, right? And the Marine Corps, strangely, was surprised, even though this was nothing new (laughs) to women who had served in the Marines. But the kind of fearlessness with which predators and misogynists and racists are now operating in uniform is 
something that really worries me. The transgender ban is also a kind of hard policy move that has set things back. You know, all of us who are being particularly marginalized or ostracized in the military, you know, immigrants, it's an all-volunteer force, right? Without all of us volunteering to serve, you won't have a military. So I'm not sure entirely. um, It's really bad policy just from a, a management point of view. It has always been bad policy to encourage misogyny, racism, and homophobia, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I want to finish with what you're doing now. So we talked about your time before the military, your time in the Marines, mm-hmm. and then your full-throated activism since then. But now you've gone in another sort of unpredictable to the outsider direction. And you're, as I understand it, doing yoga and meditation classes for veterans. So how do you see this as a part or a departure from the work that you've done up till now? Yeah, I mean, I discovered yoga and meditation when I was in the Marines, and it was one of the ways in which I kind of kept alive the last year, particularly during a really traumatic sexual harassment investigation in my own unit that I started on behalf of my own Marines who were being harassed. And um It was really challenging um, doing yoga and meditation, even in those early years, because it required me to be vulnerable and slow down. And those were not qualities that were helping me be the tough, you know, suit of armor wearing woman officer that I needed to be. And yet I needed to heal from a lot of traumatic experiences in the Marines. It's like there's a warmth and a kindness and a slowing down that I so desperately need to recover from Mm -hmm. all the violence that has been either done to me psychically, you know, emotionally, or that I've witnessed and observed. And so it took several years, like, to feel safe enough to take that armor off and to slow down and to sit still with my thoughts and feelings. It was a new kind of discipline that, you know, didn't involve, like, running hundreds of miles or, you know, pushing my physical limits. It was exactly the opposite. It's like, what do you do when you're so physically injured and broken and maybe emotionally injured and broken? That's definitely how I felt. I was just run down. Everything hurt. What do you do when that happens? And you can't run it off anymore. (laughs) You can't push it away anymore. It is how it is. And that's what yoga and meditation helped me with. So giving back to veterans In that way, you know, becoming a teacher and passing on these practices, it's quite radical what happens because it requires men and women, and most of my students were men, it requires us all to be vulnerable. And that's not what the military teaches. Vulnerability is a weakness in the military, but, you know, as I call the real world, in the real world, it's actually a strength. It's absolutely required to be a full-fledged human being to explore all sides of your humanity, not just your toughness. Well, your journey has certainly been extraordinary so far. What are you looking forward to most? What's next for Anurata Bhagwati? Well, I'm writing a lot. So I have a service dog right now through Canines for Warriors, which is an amazing veterans organization in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, Being a very quiet participant in this interview right now. (laughs) Yes, he is is silently observing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's been a really sweet experience, um, you know, even applying for the dog and realizing, also realizing how much our advocacy efforts have impacted the rest of the veterans community because 
Basically, the service dogs are given to veterans with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder or conditions related to military sexual trauma. And I don't think military sexual trauma was even on the map of most veterans organizations, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago. And so, I mean, it was it was beautiful to sort of see that and be like, oh, okay, like all of us are welcome, right? Mm. And so I'm writing a book about him, about this dog. And, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm learning a lot about disability law and <laughs> Sweet. the wacky world of walking through uh, crowded subways when people think you're faking your service dog status. <laughs> so, yeah. Always an adventure. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to reading more about Duke and <laughs> seeing all the wonderful things that you have in store for us as well. So, Anurado Bhagwati, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to share it with a friend and help us spread the word about At Liberty. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a minute to rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.